Welcome back to Legends of Surgery, I'm your host Tyler Rouse. Today we'll get back to one of our series, this time looking at one of the most commonly used tools of medicine, the Foley catheter. I know, it isn't exactly an instrument per se, but this humble device has a very interesting backstory. We'll take a look back through time, following the ancient history of urinary catheters, learn about the man behind the name, and as always, follow a few side roads in this episode of Legends of Surgery. Historical evidence shows that urinary catheters have been around for thousands of years. Before we get into that, let's look at the origin of the word catheter. It comes from the Greek word kathiene, spelled with a K, and literally means to let down or to send down. Now for those that don't know, the simplest definition of a catheter is a hollow tube inserted into the body, typically to drain or inject fluids, or to keep a passage open. Here we're talking about tubes inserted into the bladder to drain urine. Given that bladder obstruction is a disease that's been around since ancient times, I guess it's no surprise that people have been trying to figure out ways to fix it. An ancient Egyptian papyrus describes bronze tubes, reeds, straws, and curled up palm leaves for relieving urinary obstruction. In the ruins of Pompeii, a Roman city destroyed by a volcano in 79 CE, an S-shaped silver tube used as a catheter was found. Ancient Chinese records describe using the hollow leaves of onions, as well as rigid wood or metal tubes. Al-Zahari, an Arabic surgeon from medieval times and considered one of the fathers of surgery, I'll cover him another time, described a malleable silver tube with numerous side holes which were easier to insert. In the 16th century, another giant of surgery, Ambrose Paré, came up with silver, copper, and brass tubes with a long, gentle curve for easier insertion. And just an anatomical side note here. For those who don't know, the female urethra, which is the tube that takes urine from the bladder to the outside world, is short and straight. But in males, it is longer and takes a more tortuous path with a U-shaped bend, making insertion of a straight and rigid tube uncomfortable, to say the least. In fact, even now, modern cystoscopes, which are cameras inserted into the urethra to look at the bladder, come as both rigid and flexible, depending on how and on whom they're being used. Anyways, the history of the development of catheters goes on and on with many different materials used, so I won't bore you by listing them, but I will tell you one more story. In 1752, Benjamin Franklin came up with a silver wire helical tube rubbed with animal fat to fill the external grooves to help his brother who was suffering from urinary retention. Apparently, he also had a wire inside to increase rigidity during insertion. Later on, he actually needed his own device, as in his own words, quote, only three incurable diseases have fallen to my share, the gout, the stone, and old age. Now by this, Franklin was referring to bladder stones, which can cause obstruction. Some sources claim that he invented this kind of catheter, but in truth, it was probably created 30 years earlier by Francesco Roncelli Pardino, or even earlier. But everyone's heard of Benjamin Franklin, so he gets the credit. The next big advance was the development of the coup de catheter, which has a bizarre story behind it. Now some of you may know this type of catheter. This has a curve or bend at the tip, making it easier for male insertions. It was invented in 1836 by French surgeon Louis-Auguste Marcier, and the name means both elbow and bent in French, depending on how it's used. He also later created a catheter with two bends, calling it a bicoude. But here's the funny thing. In 1957, the Journal of Medical Students in Cardiff, Wales, called The Leech, published a fictional biography of a French surgeon named Emile Coudet, who invented the catheter, going so far as to name the town he was from and even giving a picture of the fictional surgeon with made-up references. Now, amazingly, a number of articles after this used it as a real reference, creating confusion when it was included in textbooks. Apparently, the misconception still exists in some corners of the internet, and on Twitter I've linked to an article describing this. Okay, so back to a discussion about materials. Now, in the late 1700s, natural rubbers and gums were starting to be experimented with, and a number of people were credited with at least making the attempt to make catheters out of this. 
Now, the first successful creation was actually by a silversmith in Paris named Bernard, who had the idea to cover and impregnate a woven silk cylindrical tube with rubber. But the problem was that at body temperature, rubber becomes weak, and fragments could get lodged into the bladder. That was until, at least, the discovery of vulcanization. All right, let's take a minute to follow this side road. Vulcanization is the chemical process by which the physical properties of natural rubber is improved, the most simple version of which is done by heating rubber with sulfur. Now this gives it a higher tensile strength, resistance to swelling and abrasion, and makes it elastic over a greater range of temperatures, basically making it an ideal material for catheters. A British scientist and engineer actually was given the first patent on May 21, 1844, but Charles Goodyear was awarded a patent in the U.S. three weeks later on June 15, 1844 and most sources credit Goodyear with the discovery, and he himself claimed that he discovered it in 1839. The urban legend behind this is that he accidentally dropped some India rubber mixed with sulfur on a hot stove and so stumbled upon it, but Goodyear himself claimed that it was more trial and error than accident. Throughout his life, Goodyear struggled with financial issues and spent many of his final years in court fighting patent infringements and failed businesses, even landing in debtor's prison in Paris. He died penniless in 1860. Now, four years later, in 1898, the Goodyear Tire and Rubber Company was named in his honor. And just for the sake of thoroughness, a bit on the term vulcanization. It actually comes from the Roman god of fire named Vulcan, and for all those Star Trek fans out there, Vulcan is also the name of the people, the planet, and the star system that Spock comes from. Apparently, the fictional homeworld has a very harsh environment with deserts and lava fields, so same inspiration. Anyways, it didn't take long for someone to realize this vulcanized rubber would be useful for urinary catheters, and that person was Dr. Auguste Nelaton in Paris, who invented what is still known as the Nelaton type of catheter of red rubber. As these evolved and the use of catheters spread, there was a need to standardize the sizes available. Enter Joseph Frederick Benoit Charrier, a French instrument maker. He developed a system still used today, which you may have heard of, the French scale. It is based on one-third of a millimeter, measuring the external diameter. Therefore, a 9 French catheter would be 3 millimeters in diameter. Apparently, in some French-speaking countries, the system is called the Charrier scale, abbreviated CH. Now, these new standardized catheters of vulcanized rubber were revolutionary, but the problem was that these catheters wouldn't stay in the bladder. Now, a number of methods were attempted, usually taping or even sewing in place. In 1855, Jean-Francois Raybard invented a self-retaining catheter consisting of a device with two channels, one for draining the urine and the other to inflate a balloon close to the tip to retain the catheter in the bladder. This was the prototype of the Foley catheter. But the quality of rubber caused the balloon to disintegrate. It wasn't until latex became available in the 1930s that the modern version we know could become a reality. So let's meet the man. Frederick Eugene Basil Foley was born in St. Cloud, Minnesota in 1891. He went to Johns Hopkins School of Medicine, graduating in 1918. Foley then did a postgraduate year in pathology and spent a year with Dr. William Stuart Halstead, a giant of surgery and one of the founders of Johns Hopkins, as well as a fascinating character. Don't worry, we'll get to him later. This inspired Foley to go into surgery, and he obtained a residency at the Peter Bent Brigham Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts, training under the famous neurosurgeon Dr. Harvey Cushing, who made an appearance in Podcast 7 on the Bovie, if you remember. Of interest, the position only became open because the previous resident got tuberculosis. <coughs> so Foley developed a, quote, keen interest in neurosurgery, end quote, due to his mentor's abilities, describing Cushing as, quote, an amazingly skilled surgical technician, end quote. Unfortunately, the feeling was not mutual. Cushing did not support Foley's career choice and offered him only a permanent assistant position, telling him that neurosurgery was, quote, a very hard row to hoe, end quote. Even Foley admitted that Cushing had a dim view of him as a neurosurgeon. 
So instead of taking the poor paying job, he returned to St. Paul, Minnesota in 1922. Here he went to the superintendent of the city and county hospital and asked for an appointment in the urology department. Now this was strange for a couple of reasons. One, the hospital didn't have a urology department, as general surgeons typically handled urology cases, and Foley had no formal training in urology. To his own surprise, Foley was given the position despite, quote, privately feeling like a fish out of water, end quote. Now my favorite part of the story is that there was a rumor that the superintendent, who was hard of hearing, thought Foley wanted a job in neurology. However, the departments of the hospital were happy because they wanted urologists to start a new department, and the guy they got would become a pretty good one. Foley would go on to develop a number of procedures and instruments in the field of urology, but let's get to the main event, and we'll come back to highlight some of his other accomplishments afterwards. So as we already discovered, catheters with balloons were actually first created in the mid-1800s, but by the 1930s, they still consisted of separate balloon and catheter, which were cumbersome and often failed. Foley's innovation was to develop a method of manufacturing the catheter and balloon as a single unit by attaching an inflating tube and balloon by means of a fine silk thread and waterproof cement. Now, oddly enough, he created this to control bleeding after prostate surgery, not realizing its greater utility. In 1935, he collaborated with a manufacturing company called American Anode, a subsidiary of B.F. Goodrich Company. Even though Foley did not initially feel that it was right to benefit financially from an invention that improved medical care, he became offended in 1936 when Paul A. Rake, an employee of the Davol Rubber Company, patented a similar catheter. So Foley applied for a patent in October of 1936, contesting Rake's ownership of the design. After a lengthy legal battle and appeals, Foley lost and Rake was awarded the patent. Oops. Maybe this is related to the adage to be sure to publish your work. In this case, patent it. So seeing as he lost his battle for the patent, why do we call it a Foley catheter? Well, despite losing the battle, he continued to champion its use, and it appears as early as 1944 in a catalog of surgical instruments as, quote, the Foley self-retaining bag catheter, end quote. Some of his other contributions to urology include an artificial urinary sphincter, which is used to prevent urine escaping out the urethra, and was very similar to that used today. He also created a rotating resectoscope, which is an instrument used to do surgery on the bladder and prostate, and in 1929, he developed a surgical procedure called the YV plasty. Now, this was a method of correcting a congenital, which means present at birth, obstruction of the ureteropelvic junction, or UPJ. This is the place where the ureter leaves the kidney, taking urine down to the bladder. If this gets blocked, it can cause hydronephrosis, a swelling of the kidney, which untreated will lead to the destruction of the kidney tissue. Foley's procedure improved upon the previous surgical method, taking it from a 50% success rate to 90 to 95% success. This was such an important breakthrough that the Journal of Urology in 2002 reprinted his article from 1937 describing 20 of these operations. And his inventions were not limited to urology. Foley also introduced a hydraulic operating table for better positioning and accessibility to the patient during surgical procedures. In his private life, Dr. Foley was beloved by friends, family, and residents. He had two daughters, one of whom was actually one of the iconic Coke girls for the Coca-Cola campaigns during World War II, and I'll try to find something on social media to post for you. And there's one funny story. He was known during holidays to use a medical syringe full of butter to baste the turkey and inject it with more butter. With Thanksgiving not too far off for my North American listeners, this may be a useful culinary tip. Frederick Foley died in 1966, just days short of his 75th birthday. So we've covered a lot more than the Foley catheter, but certainly I enjoyed learning about the lengthy history of urinary catheters, as well as indulging in a few tangential stories 
which led us to the unexpectedly fascinating history of this humble but critical device. That wraps up another episode of Legends of Surgery, and I hope you enjoyed it. I know summer is over, but I'm going to stick to the every two-week schedule as it gives me more time to research and give you a more thorough and hopefully more interesting history. In the next episode, we'll take a look at Dominique Jean Leray, father of modern military surgery. Please rate the podcast on iTunes and leave a comment there, or follow me on Twitter at Surgery Legends. Like us on Facebook at Legends of Surgery, or send an email to legendsofsurgery at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you about your thoughts on the podcast or ideas for future episodes, and as always, thanks for listening. Thank you.